1: part of the ACAST Creator Network.
2: Hello, welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Today we're joined by an old friend of the podcast who has been on the show a number of times with us. This is Chris Gray, who is the Emeritus Professor of Organization Studies at Royal Holloway University of London, and he previously held positions at Cambridge and Warwick Universities. In 2021, he published Brexit Unfolded, which was, in my view, uh, one of the best publications that I've certainly come across about the whole Brexit process. And in September, just gone, he updated this to take account of events since the transition period began. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Um, Chris Johns, myself, delighted to have you again, because it's difficult to get somebody That is such a grasp of a subject, such a level of expertise. So always a pleasure. Um, There's so much we could talk about today. And I think where we'd like to start, if we could, is on the Hallett Inquiry into the British government handling of COVID-19. And in your fantastic blogs on Brexit, and there's one I want to get back to in a second, but in your fantastic blogs on Brexit, you say that the Hallett Inquiry presents an extraordinary picture of the British government and, in the process, much about Brexit. And I guess we saw the further crystallisation of that over the last couple of days with the um, decision to bring David Cameron back into the Cabinet. But if I may refer to your most recent blog on the Hallett Inquiry, and I want to read out a paragraph that I think sets the scene. And to me, it is one of the finest pieces of English literature I've ever read, to be honest. (laughs) It was Boris Johnson who appointed Dominic Cummins as his chief advisor and gave him such latitude of powers, a latitude which, amongst other things, led to the resignation of the then-Chancellor, Sajid Javid, just as the pandemic was starting. It was Johnson who expended so much political capital to keep Cummings in post after the Bernard Castle scandal. They as in Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummins, were two cheeks, one flabby and purpled, the other scrawny and pockmarked of the same backside. And what lay between them, connecting them, defining them was Brexit
1: brilliant brilliant writing That's i'm happening. very en- i'm very envious that you could come up with such words chris
3: <laughs> when you said you were going to read a paragraph i i thought what's it going to be and then i suddenly realized that, yes it's going to be that one and, uh, and before and before i say anything else let me just say you know it's great to be on again and thanks for inviting me so yeah i, I will say that quite often with the blog you know it, it's it's it can become quite sort of dry and technical in places and uh, so i do like to try to leaven it a little bit with Maybe some sort of little phrases that may raise an eyebrow or, or, or bring a smile, or if indeed in some cases, or in that case, I think there were a few readers last week who said, said that it had, it had rather put them off their breakfast as they, uh, <laughs> as they as they conjured with that image.
1: Let's start with the, the very start of your blog, yeah. Chris, where you you talk about the evidence being presented to the Hallett Inquiry, and I think what you get at when you talk about revealing an extraordinary picture of the the British government at the time and in the process much about Brexit that's a straight quote from your blog and I think you're absolutely right to to begin there because what I think a lot of people have taken away from the inquiry itself and the way people like you you in particular have written it up is the jaw-dropping way in which those of us that have followed all of these things very closely as everybody like us have. We we all knew how dysfunctional things were. We always knew about the chaos of Downing Street. We always knew about the lunacies of Brexit. And we, we've talked about it many, many times with you before. But what's jaw dropping about this, this inquiry, the Hallett inquiry, and I think surprising, well, to me anyway and and I suspect to you, was just how bad it all was. And that we, although we knew all this stuff, we didn't realise just how deep it actually ran. And it was even perhaps worse, perhaps much worse than we yeah. thought. Do you think that's a fair yeah. assessment?
3: I, I mean, I, I really do. And, 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 and I, do, I do say on the blog, you know, I think it's kind of important because it's easy to become a bit kind of cynical about all this and, and for people to go, oh yeah, well, we all knew they were useless and so on. But there really is a, a for me, in everything evidence matters you know and, and so it's one thing to have a to intuit what was going on or, or to have some sense of it but it is completely different to actually sort of see you know be seeing the documents be seeing the whatsapp exchanges be seeing be hearing the evidence i mean understandably and, and, and rightly in a sense because this is a, a an inquiry into COVID, to the extent people have picked up on the brexit themes in it in the in the media the main pickup has been to sort of say, well, having to deal with Brexit was sort of basically, you know, got in the way of, of, of Covid, that it hampered, you know, pre-pandemic planning and, and and so on and so forth. I mean, my and that's, and that, and that's clearly right. And, it, and it's an important thing for people to understand. But my take on this, particularly in the blog, was also, though, is, is the other way around is also to, to that what it is showing us is this was also the government that was doing. That was delivering Brexit. Okay, it, it, I mean, not just that, but you know, this was the Johnson "Get Brexit Done" government, and it would clearly be ludicrous to imagine that on at one moment there's this utter chaos going on around COVID, and then suddenly, when they're dealing with Brexit with a snap of the fingers, they become some kind of super competent uh, administration. That clearly, you know, is just is just sort of simply sort of beyond beyond belief, and and I think. It's kind of important to remember the chronology of this, because if you think about what was sort of, you know, in particular, if we think about of, of 2020, which was the year uh, when obviously the pandemic was at its height. I mean, this was also the year when the trade and cooperation agreement was being negotiated. Right. So by the same people at the same time. Um, and I labour perhaps you know quite heavily the, the you know the point on the blog that one of the key decisions at that time was whether or not to apply for an extension to the transition period. Um, and on any kind of logic when you're in the middle of a pandemic actually even if you were handling it quite well there would be very good reason to have tried to, to extend the transition. But let alone when you're so having such difficulties handling that pandemic and it was really just because of this sort of idea that I mean, Brexit had actually happened. Britain had left the EU, and it was this sort of idea of, oh, well, you know, we, we can't do that because that would be sort of giving in to the remainers. And I and I say on the blog, quoting a blog that I wrote at the time, that that decision about extending the transition period, it wasn't as presented at the time as, oh, this is the last, you know, the last ditch attempt by the remainers to thwart Brexit is to extend the transition. No, it was the first. Governmental decision of the Brexiters as to whether they could govern as a post Brexit government as opposed to a campaigning uh, movement campaigning for Brexit, and they failed it.
1: Yeah, one of the things that you uh, do say in your blog is that you make reference to your most read blog of all time from that year that you just referenced there in a post from April 2020. And I think it's worth just dwelling on on that piece of writing, which, again, is, is something I am very envious of. What both Brexit and coronavirus reveal are some fundamental flaws in the way we are governed and the political discourse around it. The populist explosion of this decade, of which Brexit was a prime example, has bequeathed a way of governing which is impervious to reason and incapable of engaging with complexity. Engaging with complexity and our failure to do so is something that I actually I think has much wider applicability. I think it's all over the place. And you go on. It isn't just chance that we have a woefully incompetent prime minister, a dud deputy, and a cabinet of mediocrities propped up by a cadre of special advisors with few skills beyond contrarian posturing. They are the legacy of Brexit. They were brought into power by Brexit. And you go on in this wonderful fashion. One of the things that resonates with me there from a post that you wrote nearly Oh, nearly three and a half years ago, is that cabinet, that government, that party of second raters? I think was one of the subtexts of the events of recent days, in which to go fishing for a foreign secretary, he had to he had to go out of the current parliamentary party and find uh, David Cameron with, uh, sitting in his caravan without much to do. I suppose it's a form of rehousing the uh, <laughs> somebody that was, that was not living in a tent but certainly uh, living in his back garden in a caravan by, by all accounts. So, and I think that is a subtext, isn't it, to this present day, is that the quality of this cabinet, of this party, I mean, it would be probably doing them a, a favour to describe them as second-raters. They're not even that, are they?
3: Mm. And, and and to me, it also kind of it, it throws at the fact that there is this sort of, to my mind, a, a, a important point about the question of the relationship between competence and populism. And it seems to me that they are an, antithetical. Um, and I wrote it not in the blog, but in a column recently. I did this kind of monthly column in, in Byline Times, which is called, Chris Gray's Brexit Britain, and and I wrote one recently, which was which was kind of like saying, even if we forget any of the kind of the moral or um, political kind of objections to populism, I think we might disagree with it that that there is this fundamental issue of that that populism is incapable of delivering good, competent government, right? Um, and a lot of that is bound up with the with this issue of sort of simplism. Because because as a campaign, populists can always say, oh, there are very simple answers to these complex problems, you know, why are the small boats, we've got small boats crossing the Channel, just get the Navy to stop them and dump them back in France, you know. Well, you know, but of course, as soon as you're in government, those things cannot be done. And so there is this kind of, this sort of antithesis, I think, between competence and populism. So then when we think about Sunak, he's this very strange kind of character, because he obviously came to power on the sort of the pitch of competence, right? So you've had this chaotic trust implosion, this sort of, yeah, you know, I mean, just just you're almost indescribably farcical almost of the government. And so then the idea is, well, here is here is Sunak and he's going to going to steady the ship and he's a sort of competent, sort of technocratic sort of guy, and so on, so forth. But all the time since he became prime minister, he's always kind of, kind of flip-flop between these you know taking these more populist positions and then trying to assert this notion of a sort of competence and so yes in terms of kind of economic policy um you know he he, he, he kind of you know reverted to a kind of a fiscal orthodoxy which you know we could have all kinds of debates about that but but still you know it, it was a stabilizing thing but he has been he's made this, this kind of preoccupation with you know stopping the small boats Uh, the kind of the pivot away from you know the policies that would would tend to support net zero Um, and so now with this kind of latest thing with sort of Cameron and obviously in parallel getting rid of Suella Braverman and I guess a lot of commentators are talking about this in terms of saying okay so he's now he's turned his back on the populist sort of you know Brexiter uh, right wing of the party and is sort of and is reverting to something more kind of centrist but I don't think that <clears throat> well it remains to be seen how this plays out but it doesn't feel as if it's got any very sort of deep roots in belief I mean it was only a month ago that he was talking about saying oh well we've got to um, I forget the exact words he used at the party conference but he was talking about you know the failed 30 year consensus uh, and so to say that on the one hand and then on the other hand to say well and what's the answer to this? Well, to bring back David Cameron, who was the leader of the Tory Party for you know what, fifteen? or I, I can not know, probably eleven years of the eleven of those thirty years, and was Prime Minister for, for you know whatever six. And I mean, let's you know, let's see where we are next week. You know, is there going to be a you know, is there going to be another uh, kind of um, thing? And of course, um, certainly. Uh, I mean, it's clearly true that the the, the, the the kind of the populist Brexit kind of right of the party are pretty outraged because, you know, they see Cameron. I mean, even going back to before the referendum, those kinds of conservatives talked about David Cameron as, oh, he's not a real conservative, you know, too socially liberal, too metropolitan, too globalist, too, 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 too green, those kinds of things. And similarly with Sunak. I mean, although he, he, he supported Brexit, but to the Brexiters, they they see him and his whole kind of... I mean, it's strange that he did support Brexit because his whole kind of vibe, if you want to call it that, is, 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 is very sort of Remainer-ish, isn't it? You know, sort of, you know, ex-Goldman Sachs, Stanford MBA, you know, in their terms, you know, a globalist, right? All those sorts of things. I'm actually in the process of writing writing the blog for next Friday, and one of the things that I'm sort of saying about this is that... about him is that is that I don't think that we can... You know, I used to think okay he's inexperienced, he's feeling his way we don't, really, we don't really exactly sort of know what he sort of, um, stands for but I don't think that really holds water anymore and it seems to me that this kind of plasticity it doesn't cover some deeper core of belief or purpose It's just all there is to him it, it, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not about you know, It's familiar for politicians to try to be all things to all people and, and ending up pleasing nobody. But I just think with him, there's just there is less to him than meets the eye, and the reason is impossible to read. Is not because of any kind of inscrutability of purpose, but because, quite simply, there is nothing to read. Um, and for that reason, I don't think that we can assume that if we go another six months or a year to the election, that we're still going to be. You know, so so people say, right? Like, he's his he's drawn a line in the sand you know, saying no to the populists, gets rid of bravo and brings in David Cameron. And actually, even within hours, he brings in Esther McVeigh to be the sort of, well, originally it was reported she'd be a cabinet minister uh, responsible for sort of anti-woke policy. Apparently now she's not going to, she's going to attend cabinet, but not actually be
1: a member of cabinet. minister for common sense. The the more I think about this, the more I'm tending to agree with what you've just said about Sunak is that when we look for what's there and we realize, actually, there probably isn't very much there. Yesterday, I was tempted to write something saying, will the real Rishi Sunak stand up? Because I was thinking, well, what does this man actually believe? And, you know, what are his core beliefs? Because they are you know depending on the day of the week that's in it we seem to get a different set of core beliefs and yes we're used to politicians as you say being all things to all people but to this extent it's it's quite remarkable and we still don't have any sense i was going to write yesterday about what it is that rishi sunak truly believes and what you're suggesting there could well be right which is that he actually doesn't have any beliefs he's in a way quite nihilistic and in that way, I think he's very similar to Johnson, maybe coming at it from a different angle. I think Johnson's classical learning has done him a great disservice in that he studied philosophers who've, who've told him that nothing really matters, and that therefore, you know, do whatever you like in, in a moral relativist sort of way. He's got a kind of a pseudo skin deep intellectual justification for his nihilism with his light learning of, of philosophy. I think Sunak is a is a type that I would actually know better than that. I don't know too many classically trained scholars who are nihilists but I think sunak's lack of belief um is consistent with a lot of people I know because I've worked in the city of London for many years and I know lots of people like that who soul who who really go through life as you say the Goldman Sachs hedge fund route who make a lot of money and that's sufficient for them they don't think about anything too deeply and I think that's his background he's obviously quite that both he and Johnson were quite bright I think sunak has just glided through life without needing to acquire a deep intellectual apparatus that gives him some core beliefs about about the world about the universe Um, and johnson equally i think is quite bright and again you allude to this in in your blog where you almost correct yourself when you talk about him uh his main quality isn't actually lack of intellectual heft it's just bloody laziness L-
3: lazy mindedness yes it's so really it's interesting comparison i mean you know i think they're, they're psychologically quite different sort of characters but i but, I, but I get the comparison and and certainly what you say about that sort of suit that type i mean to me you know having worked for my whole my whole career in 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 business schools he he makes he, he to me he's a very familiar type from kind of big league mba programs i mean he was a stanford um, and it, and it is a certain type, and it and and so, and it would be wrong to discount them as as as, as stupid. Certainly, you know, Sumac, they're not they're they're not they're not stupid, and and they are indeed as he seems to be, you know, often very very hardworking, and they can be quite affable, you know, and quite socially sort of, you know, uh, adept and and all those kinds of things. But but there's but there's no but there's no there's no there doesn't seem to be any depth to it, you know. And actually, I was thinking this even about. Um you know one of the things that he's sort of he's talked about is um you know has been kind of you know like a tech bro and and obviously he's shown this interest in you know AI ai regulation but when I think about you know w- what are the things that I've ever actually heard him say about artificial intelligence and as far as I can recall, all he ever kind of says is you know well it does present a lot of kind of opportunities, but it also presents a lot of threats and it's like you Know well, my cat could tell you that, you know. I mean,
1: or McKinsey, no-
3: or McKinsey, <laughs> or McKinsey <yeah>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, that's but um, but um, but there's no, but, you know what I mean, but there's no, there's, there's, and there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but there's no depth to it, it's not, you know, it, it, it doesn't have any, 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 there's any-
1: no intellectual hinterland at all, is there?
3: Well, there doesn't seem to be, and um, there doesn't seem to be, and, and and so, of course, that then becomes, uh, I mean, it's said, for example, that he kind of Thatcherite that Nigel Lawson is his, is his sort of hero he has a picture of Nigel Lawson on the wall um, and I think there was a profile of him written by Matthew dancona who's now the editor of the new European a couple of weeks ago uh, drawing attention to that and kind of saying that in some in some sense it's, it's kind of like as if he's still kind of stuck in this politics of you know of of, of, of thirty years ago it doesn't really have any yeah the, 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 the nothing is kind of nothing has sort of moved on it's all
0: so Isn't, it's difficult
3: there's... to understand, but that makes things really kind of in you know that that then has a particular problem, if you like, within the context of the Tory Party, where you've got you know these swathes of people who are deeply, deeply ideologically committed. Some of them may be much more stupid in a functional sense than Sunak, but the, but the but but much much more deeply rooted in their beliefs, and I mean by that. I mean, they they go under so many different names and have so many different, slightly different sort of kind of, um, you know, like what the French would call kind of groupuscule, you know, so you've got the national conservatives and you've got the real conservatives and the new conservatives and the conservative democratic organisation and the common sense group and the uh, anti-net zero group. And of course, you've still got the ERG. And many of these have got overlapping memberships and so on, but they're all basically saying the same Kind, you know, the same kind of thing. And I suppose the issue now is going to be... And it's obvious that, assuming that the Tories win uh, lose the next election, that there is going to be the most massive punch-up uh, in the Tory party about what has happened over the last few years. And my guess is that someone from that populist uh, right wing will be installed as leader. I suppose the question now is, will they go into that mode now? I mean, so far, the reaction to... Cameron coming back and De Brotherman uh, being sacked. I think she's claiming to have resigned, but my understanding is she was sacked. Um, uh, and, and the calculation has been, I mean, even going back to when the Windsor framework was agreed, and they were all pretty pissed off about that, but they didn't do anything because they basically recognised, as Reese Mogg said at the time, you know, well, we just can't have a new leader again, you know, change leader before, you know, before the election. So the question is, is, is that still the calculation or not? And Brotherman is talking ominously about making some kind of statement that's going to be, you know. But uh, I could envisage one possibility is that Brotherman makes some kind of, um, uh, I'm not sure that what the right word is, but, you know, that as an ex-minister, so she's entitled to make a sort of a valedictory speech from the back bench, is, is, is that right? Um, and, you know, you, you'll recall the Jeffrey Howe speech that, that, you know, yes, Savage
1: up, Thatcher. You know,
3: yeah. And I just wonder if, if you know, if there was going to be sort of something like that, because I think it's still a very febrile situation.
2: Uh, Chris, could I just, I guess you, you've kind of answered my question. I was going to ask you there three things, really. One was, what will the decision to bring Cameron in do to the fortunes of the Tory party over the next 18 months? Uh, secondly, what does it mean for the Tory party in terms of the, the divisions within the parties just just, just going to exacerbate the situation, and I guess thirdly, I was going to ask you: Will Suella Breverman be the next leader of the Tory Party? And I think you've answered those questions pretty well.
3: I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not sure about about Braverman as the next leader of the Tory Party, but I think someone of that sort of, that sort yeah. of the, the thing about, um, I mean, the bit the, the bit in that that we haven't talked about is the issue about the voters and. I mean, I mean, some people are writing up the Cameron thing of sort of saying, well, this is to kind of try and shore up the you know, the conservative blue wall in the, in the in the south of more sort of, you know, of more kind of centrists, if you like. Um, and to the extent that's true, obviously, that's also likely to, to be to be that's not going to play well with the red wall seats. So maybe this is a kind of a core vote strategy that it's sort of falling back to. I mean, the difficulty with that now is what is the core vote of the Tory party? Because I don't think you can necessarily sort of flick a switch on this whole sort of populist thing that's happened over the last few years and then just sort of say, oh, well, you know, we're back to we're back to we're back to business as usual. And in any case, I really wonder to what extent Cameron can really sort of shift the dial for those voters in the the sort of, you know, the, the, the blue wall, southern Tory seats, because, you know, some of those people, anyway, are pro-Brexit and so they will not particularly like Cameron, who is a Remainer, but the people if we're, if we're thinking about the sort of the, the, the voters who were Tory Remainers, or at least not very sort of, not particularly sort of hard Brexiters and so on, I mean, I think the, problem, the issue with Cameron is that he's almost sort of despised on all sides, you know, because if you're a Remainer, then this is the guy who, you know, who gambled on the referendum, who lost and then walked away whistling, you know, whistling whatever it was he was whistling, you know. And I'm not really kind of convinced that there are that many voters, you know, even people who maybe at one time quite like Hammond, who will sort of think, "Oh, yeah, that," you know, "this this really changes this shifts you know, shifts the dial for me." And I think, really, you know, more deeply, th- the issue here is that is that I don't really think anything, bar some very unusual, extraordinary kind of event, I'm not sure anything now can shift the dial because I think most politically unengaged voters, you know, not the people who follow the stuff all the time, but just people who sort of, you know, they've basically now made up their mind, right? It's, it's you know, this is, you know, th- this government has gone on on long enough and it's really just now, it's, it is just now, it is now sort of serving out its time. And you can almost feel a kind of a palpable sense that the people, including actually, you know, including Tories, you know, just want to get it over with, you know? And so we're in this strange kind of, rather tortured kind of hiatus where everything is kind of on hold until the next election and and, and it's just sort of
2: yeah chris um i I guess there's some parallel with what's happening in ireland at the moment because um the you know the the inquiry certainly as you were saying has shown up a huge level of dysfunction in the political governance of the Great Britain at this juncture. One thing that does come out is the role of the permanent government, the civil servants, and the evidence that was given by Helen McNamara. Um, she described a culture that was morally grotesque and substantially and, sub- sorry, substantively and substantially impairs the quality of decision-making. These are my words. I don't think I was describing Helen McNamara. No, no, but I I, absolutely, absolutely, but You know, I think you described very well the evidence that she gave, because that's the picture, certainly, that was painted. Here in Ireland, we're likely to have Sinn Féin in government after the next election. And some people worry about that from an economic management point of view and a governance point of view and so on. But people come back and say to me, well, listen the permanent government here will not allow anything bad happen the permanent government in the uk did allow bad stuff happen has anything improved there has that culture improved since then do you think
1: the permanent government in in honor just to translate there for a second yeah. cuz that's uh, what you would know as the blob <laughs>
2: okay <laughs> yeah
3: is that the same as the, is that the same as the deep state
1: indeed <laughs>
3: yeah um well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the, the the relationships between ministers and civil servants, my sense is that has improved since Sunak came to power, right? And, of course, in a sense, that's the kind of the, the flip side of, of the reason why the Brexitists and the populists kind of rather loathe Sunak because he, they sort of see him as, of course, he gets on with the civil service. They're all part of, you know... They're all part of the same bloc. But certainly, you know, you hear much less of of these kind of open, you know, more or less open conflicts between civil servants and, and, and ministers. Um, and, I mean, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is the fact, yes, yeah, Sunak is, is, is a different character anyway. Secondly, you know, even going back to when Johnson was still in power, I mean, some of the temperature got taken out of things when Cummings stopped being special advisor or whatever he was called chief advisor because he had really ramped up all this stuff about a hard rain to fall on the civil service but i mean i think there's another thing as well which is that the fundamental issue around brexit and the civil service wasn't as the Brexiters claimed that the civil service was anti-brexit and wanted to obstruct it is that the Brexiters were asking civil servants to do things which were which were simply impossible they wanted the civil service to deliver things that couldn't be delivered because they were just in principle false. And what I mean by that is, is you know, at, at the headline level would be they were being asked to devise some way of having frictionless trade with the EU without being in single market and customs union. They were being asked to, uh, they and, and they would be asked to, to have a situation where there would be there would be no there would be no border in or, or, or across Ireland, and yet still be outside single market. And he, and he, these things couldn't be delivered. And it was that fundamental clash between, on the one hand, reality and rationality, and on the other hand, you know, faith and belief, that caused that kind of explosion. Now, the Sunat government, it may be doing all kinds of things which are utterly crap, or being incompetent in various kinds of ways, but I don't think there's anything where you've got that real kind of fundamental you know, saying yes. you've got to deliver something that's in, that is in principle impossible.
1: And I think that's an absolutely fundamental point that permeates all of your writing, actually, your blogs and your books, which is the the, the detail and the complexity, which culturally we seem to uh, move, don't like anymore, um, leads to this clash of ideology and reality. And, of course, that we've seen that through history. Ideologues have always bemoaned the, the betrayal of the revolution, yeah. That that's very much part of that, um, but these guys, these Brexiteers, are the dog that caught the car, and I'm not the first. I'm not the first to use that that metaphor, um, and they don't know what to do with it. Of course, yeah. they they do claim that their revolution has been betrayed. But then anybody's revolution that meets reality, it's always, as you have said so many times, yeah. reality that wins because it, it has to axiomatically. And then they move on to um, a, a different, usually a different form of betrayal type uh, type claim. And uh, I think that in the context of Brexit, you yourself have alluded or written explicitly about how they, they say that their dream wasn't just the hard Brexit that they got – because they really did get the hard Brexit that they yeah. wanted, but that what that was going to lead to was Singapore on Thames—the deregulated, light-touch, smaller, low-tax state that Singapore isn't, of course, <laughs> in many respects—and so they just move, they just move the goalposts, just keep complaining, and you could, as I say, argue that that is present throughout all of human history revolution betrayed but i think in the context of brexit in particular this meeting of re- the ideology meeting reality and reality always winning is a point you know in- incredibly important to, to keep on making the other thing i would i would say is that we're talking about a process or about a, a set of circumstances that almost predates brexit we can go at least all yeah. the way back to john major's bastards yeah yeah, yeah. and Ken Clarke's Crocodiles, uh, all, all the different stories that people have always described this wing of the Tory party in various ways, but all amounting to the same thing is that they're never happy. They're never satisfied. They will always cry betrayal when their dream meets reality. We're just living through another version of that.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, I mean... I'm going to write for this Friday uh, uh, to talk about the the present stuff happening this week and sort of say, you know, this is an episode in this kind of 30-year civil war that the Tory party has been in. I, I, I think, I mean, there's a couple of additional points that make to make that is, one is that is that I think that this, this thing about betrayal is an ever-present thing, but I think it has a particular twist, probably not unique to Brexit, but certainly present in Brexit, you know, and as Fintan O'Toole has written about a lot as well, is that it's not just that they that they feel betrayed and that they were inevitably going to be betrayed, but there is a strand there of wanting to be betrayed, because it's only because it's only by by being betrayed that you can still say, "Oh yes, we are the downtrodden victims of the elite." You know, the betrayal is is, is not is not a bug; it is a feature. And I think the other thing is is that we should also kind of look look further afield as well, because particularly, you know, I mean, so much of this stuff that we're talking about is there still writ large in, in, in the United States in relation to the Trump kind of camp and so on. And, and one of the things, you know, it still it now seems perfectly possible that we will have a Trump, you know, well, certainly not impossible that we will have a Trump presidency again. What, what When's the American election? Is it November in next year. November 50, 50. We saw, in a way, you know, there was this dynamic between sort of Brexit and Trump back in 2016, and at that time, you know, I think he described he described himself as, as Mr Brexit. I and, and clearly here, the Brexiters, obviously by that time there'd been the referendum, um, but the Brexiters were given a huge kind of fillip by Trump's election, and they felt, you know, yes, the tide of history is running with us. And just recently, you know, there's perhaps been the feeling that the tide of history is now running back against the populace, you know, the election results in Poland, the, the manifest failure of Brexit, you know. I mean, a, a, apart from the Brexiters, everyone, not just people in Britain, but everyone looking at it from abroad, people don't even really think or talk about it anymore. It's just its just one of those things. It's just self-evident. You can certainly kind of see how if you get another Trump presidency that is threatening to be much more extreme uh, and much more sort of, um, uh, you know... Uh, 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 what's the word
1: Autocratic.
3: Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that we're sort of out of this, we're out of this wood yet. And in that kind of context, you know, you can see the reaction from people in the Reform Party and others uh, of that persuasion, the reaction of those people to to uh, Brotherman's kind of sacking. And actually, one of the things I'm going to write on Friday is there's a remarkable... Commonality um, in the reactions of the, you know, the real kind of, you know, the far-right protesters on the street who say Suella was sacked for telling the truth. And that's exactly or uh, almost identical headline in The Telegraph in an article written by Jacob Rees-Mogg and almost identical stuff in Andrea Jenkins. And this is really worrying because it is now the case that the kinds of things that, that the sort of the besuited well-spoken MPs are saying is effectively the same as what the far-right thugs are saying. And so that's still a tinderbox.
1: Yes, I think that's right. Chris, I I think you raise an important point there, which is that this is just going to go on and that a a watershed moment will be the US presidential elections. Will that be a staging post to this continuing and perhaps getting worse? Or will we then look back um, after a, a... Biden or other Democratic candidate victory is saying that the high watermark of all of this populist demagoguery has passed. So in a way, I think you're saying it's still all to play for. And one of the things that's going to be very, very key to all of this is the U.S. presidential election. And I think that's absolutely right. Chris, we've run out of time, at least I have, and I've taken too much of your time. Jim, can I leave the final words to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Chris, thank you very much for a fantastic contribution again. Chris and myself would just like to thank you very much for doing this for us on a regular basis. Um, as Chris said, it is an unfolding story and um, I would recommend to anybody listening in to check out your book Brexit Unfolded, and also the fantastic Brexit blog that you regularly do. Uh, it's it's great stuff, and I think it gives a really good understanding. So we we do look forward to uh, talking to you again in the near future. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Jim. It's always a pleasure. Really, thank really you. pleased to And talk. I will just add
1: my thanks there, Chris. And um, we will definitely. If you're willing, have you on again real soon? Because uh, we've left a million things unsaid. But it's as, as we'll always, as, 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 as always be something new to say. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Thank, thank you.
3: Thank
2: you. you have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.